verses 32 to 43. Luke 23, 32 to 43. Uh, this is when Jesus is on the cross. Two other men, both criminals, were also led with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. But Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. And they said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said. Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserved. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. Thanks, God. Good morning, church. I've been pastoring for 40 plus years, and it's the first time I've heard someone mention Labor Day and why we have it. And I think it was great, Rob, it connected us with the community and the world in which we live and, and makes us think about this whole thing of work and uh, <coughs> why we do it. Can an Ethiopian change the colour of his skin or the leopard his spots? No. That's a question that uh, was asked through the prophet Jeremiah, asked by God through the prophet Jeremiah to his chosen people, the nation of Israel, way, way, way back there. And it went on and said this, God speaking to these people through Jeremiah, neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. In other words, the people have become so entrenched in the evil in their life that there was no possibility of them doing good. Can human beings then really change? Can human beings really change? I want us to go to the scene that Rob just read to us on Skulls Hill almost 2,000 years ago, a stony, windswept, desolate place. And there we see three figures dying on crosses. And as we talked about last week, this was not an unusual occurrence in those days. Two of the men were criminals. Now, some of our versions say simply 
thieves. It's like they stole a loaf of bread and got carted out to Australia from England. Now these were guys who rebelled against the Roman Empire. They were against the authority of the Roman Empire. They were seditious. They were subversive. They were disloyal characters in society. They were serious threats to that society. And they looked pale and gaunt. Their situation seemed pitiful and hopeless. They were taking the last steps down a spiral staircase of failure. They couldn't hide who they were. And pinned on a cross like an insect between the two criminals is Jesus. And he's dying the death appropriate for the rebels alongside him, the brigands, the criminals. He, who is one of us, is bearing the sins of many, innocent though he was himself. It's a strange, it's an incongruous scene. Jesus, the perfect innocent one, becoming voluntarily part of the dregs of human society there on the crosses as he's crucified between these two criminals outside the city, of, of the, of city, the gates of the city where the scum belonged. <clears throat> Throughout his life, Jesus had aligned himself with the bad elements in society, the sinners, the tax collectors, the, these kinds of people, the prostitutes. And now in his death, he's numbered with the transgressors, the sinners. And I've heard many people so, say, what? What has the death of two criminals on crosses got to do with me? We live in a sophisticated society. I'm not a criminal. The law is not after me for anything. But I want to suggest to you this morning that they are actually representative of us. You see, the two criminals, as I said, displayed rebellious and insurrectionist behaviour against a true and proper working of society. They demonstrated anti-authority and anti-social behaviour. And we can be just as anti-authority and anti-social and rebellious in our hearts and attitudes and actions. The story goes back a little bit, but there was a young child standing on the wooden pews during a worship service. And the parents believed that this was inappropriate, as most of us did 50 years ago. And so they said to their little one, sit down. And the child looked at the parents and looked at the seat backwards and forwards until they reluctantly sat down. But the expression on the little kid's face said it all. I'm sitting down on the outside, but inside I'm standing up. We were before meeting Jesus and still are so often like that little child with God. Compliant on the outside, but inwardly I'm rebelling. Can I suggest to you that all of us have from very early days demonstrated an anti-authority thing against God. We're rebels. Started with Adam and Eve. Psalm 58 says, even from birth, from very early on, we go astray. From the womb, we are wayward and speak lies. 
You know, we look at this brand new innocent baby in a pram. We look at a, a toddler being wheeled along in a stroller and go, oh, isn't he so cute? Isn't he so beautiful and so sweet? But those of us who are parents know that that small innocent looking piece of flesh does not indicate the strength of its will and go against that will and you know what happens. The essence of sin is I. I want to do it my way. I want it for my gain, my comfort. I really don't need you, God. Just hang out there until I do, but the rest of the time I'll live my life independent from you. Oh, we're not standing there waving a fist, rebelling at God most of the time, but we have this anti-God stance, this bias towards self. It's the situation, the state of all people. We've been sent into the world by God, endowed with talents and the ability to use them. God has blessed us with health and strength, supplied our every need, provided opportunities to serve him, bring honour him, to work like we've talked about this morning. And the result? The very things God has given us, we have used to serve ourselves. In the sense of those criminals, we've robbed God. We are or we were in as desperate a position as the criminals on the crosses. Do we see that? Have we ever seen that? listening to some music this morning, Chris Tomlin, some of you may know him, and the lines in one of the songs as I was listening was this, we cannot win this fight in our rebel hearts. And then he goes on and says, we lift the cross, lift it high, lift it high, we lift the cross, lift it high, lift it high. And of course then we go, no, it goes on to the resurrection and victory. Do we see that, rebels, at heart? Well, I want us to take a closer look at what happened on those three crosses way back then. Because we're actually invited even more so to see ourselves in these two malefactors, these two criminals. It's easy just to read this story quickly and only think of Jesus. At the foot of the cross, the Roman soldiers united their voices with those of the chief priests and the teachers of the law to mock and insult Jesus. Here we have the Bible-believing Pharisees and the foul-mouthed, brutal, pagan, secular Romans agreeing on something for the first time. Get that? Two opposing forces come together at the foot of the cross and agree on something for the first time and they mock Jesus, they insult him. Oh, the cross is so stupid, you can hear them saying. The cross makes no sense. Anybody who's dying on the cross can't be the chosen one, can't be the Messiah. They're having a ball down there insulting Jesus. And then one of the criminals joins the sneering mob and says, <laughs> So you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself. Oh, and us too, while you're at it. 
The criminal was defiant, even in his utter defencelessness. He did not see any sign of power in the cross that Jesus was hanging on. He saw nothing of Jesus' power. How could a king allow himself to be caught in this horrible, this humiliating situation? And truth be known, this is a part of our faith and my conversations over years would indicate that we don't like being associated with something so shameful. The cross can be very ambiguous, can't it? A sign of weakness, apparently. A sign of ugliness, of failure, and it produces scepticism in those who see it. You believe in that one hanging on the cross? If you're anything like me, you don't entirely like the cross. We'd rather have the glory of the springtime than the glory of the cross. And this first criminal simply misses who Jesus really is. And I wonder if there's not some of you here this morning who've missed who Jesus really is as he hangs. You see, you don't nail a, a king to a cross. That's what this first criminal is thinking. So he joined the mocking soldiers, the Jewish leaders at the foot of the cross. He joined the mob. That's so easy to do, isn't it? Join the mob. Well, this criminal goes on and provides a test for Jesus. And he kind of, you know what, Jesus? I'll believe you're the anointed one. I'll believe you're the king. I'll believe you're the son of God. If you get me out of the mess I'm in, if you save my skin, you get me off this cross before I die. You bargaining with God like that this morning? I'll believe you. I'll follow you if you get me out of the fix I'm in at the moment. Sad to say, I have found myself over the years occasionally as a follower of Jesus bargaining with God just like that. Get me out of the circumstances I've been and I will be totally devoted to you. I'll give you my undivided allegiance. It'll be a fresh start and there'll be no turning back. It's kind of like we want a big divine supernatural personal assistant who steps in when we get a f in a fix but who we ignore until the fix. How well did it work for that thief on the cross? He missed Jesus. He missed God. It is the easiest thing in the world to do as we and others look at the cross. We can miss the real significance. And I wonder if after that interchange there wasn't a moment's silence there on Skull's Hill as the other criminal, oh he couldn't scratch his head could he? He's pinned out there but as he started turning this stuff over in his mind as he started to ponder what was going on. I think he was beginning to see who Jesus really was. He seemed to be receiving insight into the hidden power of the one strung out alongside him. 
How strange. He didn't actually resist those nails when they belted them in. He, he seemed to be inviting them. In fact, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. He didn't seek to respond to the malicious taunts of the bloodthirsty mob. He just let them have their way. And I think the thief began to feel a peculiar warmth rising in his heart. And then he notices again the sign above Jesus said, yeah, sure, it was put there to mock him, but it says the king of the Jews. They mock him as king. You know, if he was just a crazy man, they'd ignore him. Why go to all the fuss and bother? If he had no followers, you'd just walk away. If he, has, if he was nothing to fear, they wouldn't kill him. You can see this thief. You only kill a king if he actually has a kingdom. Could it be that he really is the anointed one? The king and the thief's cracked lips be open as he begins to speak. Firstly answering the other mocking one. Don't you fear God since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. He is innocent. Then he turns to Jesus and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I'm sure the soldiers looked up in great surprise. The priests stopped their chattering. Mary wiped her tears away. The crowd had taken no notice of these two fellows, all of a sudden are staring up at amazement, wondering what's going to happen. My picture is that Jesus turned his head slightly towards this second criminal, this lost sheep straggling into the fold. No excuses, just an honest plea, remember me. And says to him, today, you will be with me in paradise. A sin-soaked sinner received by a blood-stained saviour. That's what's going on up there. Amazing stuff. One of the things this says to me is that I don't ever meet another person who can't possibly receive. There's no one that I meet who's in a bad enough position that the salvation of God will pass them by should they choose to say, remember me. Who do you think in your family that you've wiped out couldn't possibly come to Jesus? In your workplaces, where you play sport. I think there's a great thing here that we need to remember about this great gift. It's offered to rebels just like we were once rebels. That's the story of these two criminals. I really wonder sometimes whether we see how rebellious we are. Because we think we're pretty right and get the inside running, we just don't imagine some of the worst of the people we know possibly 
coming to faith and crying out, remember me when they take a good look at those crosses. And do you know how they're going to get a good look at those crosses? They're going to get it by the way that we represent Jesus in our daily lives. So that we give a good picture of Jesus and they can go, oh, oh, and say, remember me. Well, I want us to back up for a moment and, and take another look at this second criminal. Don't you fear God, he says to the other one, since you're under the same sentence. We are punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve. That's a really amazing piece of honesty. There is something good, there is something sane about us having a moment where we understand who we are in relation to Jesus. Do, do we see that? I deserve this penalty that Jesus is taking. There's something really healthy about understanding we're rebellious at heart when we look at Jesus. There's a good, clean fear. When the thief really saw Jesus, when he heard his word of forgiveness, he was changed. A deep change came from being a rebel against the authority of God and society to being for God. Psalm 130 says, If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. Therefore you are feared. See the order? See the cross and the order? Forgiveness first. Then we go, oh man, there's something wrong in me. I'm a rebellious person. If I repent, forgiveness becomes mine. The thief admitted his wrong, admitted that he was deserving of death. He gave no excuses. He accepted the wrongness of his life. That was the moment of repentance. He recognized the innocence of Jesus. This man has done nothing wrong. Here in the horror scene on Skull Hill, the thief lives out the truth of what Paul wrote to the church at Rome, a church like us. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance and patience, not realising that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? The second criminal, as he looks at Jesus, sees the loving kindness of God sees the forgiveness of God in that horror scene, sees the patience of God and it leads him to go, oh, remember me. That's not that threatening really, is it? This is where often we come undone. We can't go clean and go, by golly gosh, that's me he's dying for. My rebellious heart. If that's where you are this morning, that can change as you gaze on Jesus.
And you can go, oh, that's me. Rebel at heart. This guy changed direction, did a U-turn. And if we look at repentance deeply, it comes as a profound sense of hopefulness. As he changed, he says, remember me, Jesus. The U-turn of repentance is having a deep sorrow over our rebellious sin and getting back on the journey towards God. True reality, whether it be for the first or the 50th time, it's his hands that shaped us in our mother's wombs and it's back to him we need to go. It can be hard because it hits our pride, it hits our selfishness head on, but there is no other way to positive and profound change in our lives. All of this leads to that prayer, Jesus Remember me when you come into your kingdom. See, he saw him truly as the king. The sign was true, even though it was put up there mocking. And the thief reaches out to Jesus with absolute faith. He couldn't get down off the cross and do a few things good for God. He couldn't run a few errands for God. He couldn't help a little old lady across the street for God, could he? There's nothing he could do for God then except cry out in faith. When you were still powerless, said Paul to the church at Rome, when you were without strength, that's this guy, Christ died for the ungodly, the rebel. With a humble and courageous disposition, he just simply looked at Jesus and said, remember me. Somehow, the truth had broken through deep in his gut and his heart. He saw that God was truly a forgiving father. He understood. He was holding out a powerful hope. Remember me. Have you reached that point in your life where you can see that you're utterly undone before God, that you have no strength to get yourself out of the rebellious life situation you're in, in faith, turn to Jesus, follow the lead of the criminal. Well, these crosses were close together and it took Jesus no time at all to respond to that, remember me. I tell you the truth today. Right now, you will be with me in paradise. Jesus had made no response to the insults of the crowd, nor to the malicious and cynical taunts of the priest, but he made a response to the simple prayer of the faith. At a time when he was grappling with the awful load of the weight of the sin of the whole world, he attended to the cry of one repentant sinner coming home. Boy, there's grace in that. Boy, there's hope in that. Doesn't that bring great encouragement to us? Especially when we live with those we work in at home who don't know yet. 
God will attend to their cries. He's listening. Paradise now. Now I could stand here for a couple of hours now and talk about what paradise means. The argy-bargy in the literature is great. The word simply means a park or a garden. But the issue is, what is paradise? It's where Jesus is. Didn't he say, you will be with me in paradise? Just think of that rebellious criminal hanging there who's fought the Roman authorities, who's fought the authority of God all his life. And in this last moment, God says, I'm going to be with you for the rest of your time of eternity. With you. It's a little phrase, with you. What an incredible salvation we have. God with us. 24-7 in Jesus. I leave you with the words of Psalm 1611 to reflect on. The psalmist thinking about God says, you will show me the way of life. Granting me the joy of your presence and pleasures of living with you forever. That's the gift we've been given. The joy of the presence of our God. The pleasure of being with him and he with us forever. All of this stuff is represented in these elements before us this morning. Think upon the great salvation that's being offered to you if you haven't received it yet. But if you've received it, revel in the joy of the presence of Jesus. Thanks, Rob.